I did miss um, other special guests besides Teddy, who's here today. We also need to say a congratulations to Jesus and Rikesha, who were married last week. So congratulations to them. First time here as, as a uh, married couple. We're uh, really excited to celebrate with you guys, and we love you so much and hope we can continue to encourage you um, on your marriage and your walk with God. So we're so glad that you're back with us after getting married. Uh, we're continuing our series called The Weight of Words, which uh, we're going to do uh, one last time. Um, I think next Sunday we'll be concluding it, but uh, the main thing I hope you get from this series is this concept that your words weigh a lot. The things that you say, they matter, and the things that you consistently say, those things matter. Your words weigh a lot. And we think that it's not that big of a deal. We can just say whatever we want to say, and then, oh, I'm sorry, I take it back. But we know that when you say something, at times you're not going to be able to take it back. And there are things throughout history that people have noticed that it's pretty hard to not recognize that words are, are really significant and really important. In fact, historians have noticed that when there have been genocides committed throughout history, one of the things that happens is the, the leaders who are talking about these certain groups of people, they're able to talk about them in, in dehumanizing ways. An article that I read about this said, said this. Should be up there. Next slide, right? Yeah. During the Holocaust, Nazis referred to Jews as rats, Hutus involved in the Rwandan genocide called Tutsis cockroaches. Slave owners thought throughout history that slaves were subhuman animals. In Less Than Human, David Livingston Smith argues that it's important to define and describe dehumanization because it's what opens the door for cruelty and genocide. And you read something like that and you think, well, but I would never do that. And I hope that you wouldn't, and I really assume that you wouldn't. But one of the things that's most troubling to me when I study the, the Holocaust, is that many Christian ministers didn't stand up against it. In fact, what's interesting is it's the ones who did that have written books that are compelling, and there's some, some great examples of people like Diedrich Bonhoeffer who stood up against it. But there were a lot who didn't. A lot of Christian ministers who didn't. A lot of Christians who didn't. And we can look at that and go, well, that's terrible. I can't believe that happened. And yet at the same time, we know that there is anger often in our hearts. There's hatred in our hearts. And if we maybe found a way to dehumanize a group of people, sometimes we have to sit with the fact that humans throughout history have been capable of that kind of stuff. And so we might be too. And the question that I think we need to ask ourselves is then, how do I use my words at times to dehumanize people? How do I use the words that I have to spin this negative energy into the world. There was one time many years ago when I was a student at Abilene Christian um, working with, uh, on my graduate degree there, I was talking with a guy who was assigned to be a mentor to me, and we were talking about a conflict that I had with this person, and we were just kind of discussing it. And he said, it's interesting, Brian, whenever you talk about this and like some of the conversations you've had with that person, you make him sound like a bumbling idiot. And then when you say something, it's like this really clairvoyant, like wonderful English and everything. So like when you're talking about this person who you're having a conflict with, you're able to talk about him like he just, oh, he can't even string English sentences together. But then when you talk about it from your perspective, you sound like Shakespeare, basically. He said, what does that say about how you're viewing the situation? It's easy for us all at times to dehumanize, especially people who disagree with us. It's easy for us to like, think about the negativity and just push it onto the other and not to honor people who aren't in the room with our words, even if you're having a conflict with them, even if things aren't necessarily reconciled between the two of you. 
This morning, we're going to look at the story of Joseph. We actually happen to look at it in our our Bible study uh, as well. But this is a great example to us of, I think, how we need to think about pattern in our lives in this way. And we're going to look just, just briefly at this story. It's really a long, compelling story that deserves many, many sermons. But I want to think about Joseph's words specifically as uh, we go through this. So as you think about history, just a little Bible history in about five minutes. Um, Abraham, um, in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 11, his name is Abram, and he's called by God, and he's going to make this, this great nation. And then he has Isaac, and then Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. And this is this compelling moment. It's like, all right, it looks like this thing is getting off the ground now. The, there's some movement happening here. Okay, this might be leading to this great nation um, one day. And Jacob um, has a, a favorite wife, which is always a bad idea. Um, you should just have one. Uh, that person is your favorite, not your favorite wife. Um, so d- never do that. And so because he has this favorite wife, he then has th- this favorite son, Joseph. And he, he loves Joseph, and he gives him the amazing Technicolor dream coat, which you've maybe seen somewhere else. And Joseph, at times plays the guy who you wouldn't necessarily want as a brother. He says to his brothers, hey, I had this dream, and you guys were all bowing down to me. Like, if you have that dream, don't tell everybody. That's not necessarily the best idea. So, Joseph, there's some stuff that you go, dude, you probably should have, like, toned this back a little bit. And if maybe in your family, you know who the favorite is in your family. I mean, I know it's my sister, um, so I know how, how that goes. Um, but they get a little bit frustrated um, with, with him, and it's a little bit rightfully so. And so they end up, he's coming out to, to greet them as they're hard at work while he's been just, like, chilling with dad, hanging out in the lap of luxury. And they decide they're going to throw him in this pit and they're going to kill him because it's just so annoying to have a brother like that. They're just going to say, oh, sorry, he got lost. We don't know what happened. But then the story picks up because after you throw somebody in a pit, you're hungry. So Genesis chapter 37, um, as they sat down to eat their meal, which is the story has so many weird sentences like that. It's like you just throw your brother in a pit. You're about to like kill him. And it's like, well, let's have lunch. You know, that was really tiring. Um, They looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. Very kind. Our own flesh and blood, his brothers agreed. So they sell him into slavery at this point. He's 17 years old, and he ends up going into Egypt. And this is the story I'm telling. It's many, many years, actually, but it's telling him a very short period of time. But then he is taken down to Egypt, and in Genesis 39, 1 and 2, we learn that he's in Potiphar's house. Potiphar is one of uh, Pharaoh's um, officials. But what's interesting consistently in this story, if you go to that next slide for me, Simon, consistently in this story, um, the slide after this one, uh, it tells, it tells us that the Lord was with Joseph, which is odd because he was just sold into slavery, but yet the Lord is with him. It's just like consistent background drumbeat to this story. It's, con- it's just telling you over and over again that God was with him, even though it might not look like it from the outside. So Joseph is, is there, and Potiphar's wife comes in and says, you're a slave, and like I, I command you to be with me, basically. And as a slave, he doesn't have the option necessarily to say, like, sorry, I can't do that. And so she gets upset. I mean, he does it I think in the nicest way possible, he says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Which you kind of want to ask him, come on, man. Like, how do you, are you, are you still believing this God thing after all the stuff that's happened to you? 
Why are you still walking in that way? And then she accuses him of, of trying to, to rape her. So Potiphar's like, all right, you go into prison. But again, this weird theme continues, Genesis 29, 39, verses 20 and 21. But while Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him. A few more slides. Sorry, Simon, I skipped ahead on that one. While Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him, which is a pretty unbelievable statement. Again, like, how is this possible? And he stood up for God and said to Potiphar's wife, no thanks, I'm not interested. And he goes to prison. The Lord was with him. And that's really another sermon probably for another time. I mean, whatever it is that you're going through that's difficult, that feels like the walls are are closing in on you a little bit, God can still be with you even in those moments. Even if you've done the right thing and yet you're getting bad results, it doesn't mean that God is not with you. And again, this is a story that I'm telling that happens over many years. But then he gets a reputation in prison for interpreting dreams. Several people come to him with some dreams and they say, what does this mean? How should we interpret this? What is, what's happening here? So he gets this reputation. And so Pharaoh, who is arguably one of the most like, significant, powerful people in human history, he invites Joseph in and says, I want you to interpret this dream for me. And he continues and plays the God card again, Genesis 41, 16, just the, the words that he has. It, it's always just talking about his relationship with God. He says, I can't do it. Basically, I can't like, interpret this dream on my own, but God will work through me, basically. God's going to like, work through me. I will be God's mouthpiece here. I will explain this to you. So he explains what the dream that Pharaoh has had means. Basically, it means that this is a time of plenty, and they need to be prepared for the fact that eventually there's going to be a famine, and there's going to be no food anywhere. And so they need to start putting up storehouses so they can save grain during the good times, so then when the bad times come, it won't be quite as bad. And Pharaoh is very, very impressed with this interpretation and thinks, wow, this guy obviously has some wisdom from God. He's important enough that we should keep him in this powerful position. So Genesis 41, verses 39 and 40, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made this all known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So it was a pretty epic interpretation. Imagine that you're somebody who's been like in the palace waiting for 15 years for this moment. You're like, what? This guy? Like, come on. One dream interpreted? I've been serving you forever. And basically, Joseph gets this unbelievable opportunity. And it's because of this consistent and persistent, I would argue, hope in God. He's continuing to lean into God throughout this very difficult and impossible story at times. But he then offers this moment and Pharaoh says, all right. Here you go. And this story is compelling enough on its own, but then we get the part, if you're familiar with the Bible much at all, you're probably familiar with this, that the brothers come back into the story. And they come rolling in because the famine has hit. Again, it's several years later. The famine has hit, and they have no food. So here in Genesis chapter 42, Jacob learned there was grain in Egypt. So he said to his sons, why do you keep just looking at each other? Again, these are some of the greatest lines in all of, all of the Bible. These weird phrases. Why do you keep looking at each other? I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us. 
And they go, uh, they go in and they show up. And, and Joseph, now in this position of power, he sees his brothers and he recognizes them. But Scripture tells us they don't recognize him. The question is, what do you do? And when you're in that moment, and it's likely that you won't ever have one as dramatic as that. You probably don't even have 11 siblings. Does anyone have 11 siblings in here? 11? Thelma has 11? You have 11 siblings? All right, I didn't know it was that many. 14. All right, so maybe you've had a prayer that one day, or a dream that one day they're going to come and bow down to you too, but uh, you're kind of you're waiting waiting for that moment. But really, the, the question that we should all have as we, we think about this story is like, what do you do? Because it likely will never be as dramatic as this, but there's going to be a time in your life, I think, that you did the right thing and people respond negatively to you. And it spins out of control and becomes this huge disaster, and yet you would say, but wait, 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 I did the right thing. Let's look at the facts. Like, here's the facts. Here's how this goes. I did the right thing. Or there's going to be a situation, like in Joseph's case, that you're wronged. That, I mean, yeah, he was a little bit annoying, but he didn't deserve all the stuff that happened to him. And then all the twists and turns, and he could just sit there just getting angrier and angrier. And think about those, like, alone times in prison as he's thinking about, okay, this is why this happened. If that wouldn't have gone on, if you wouldn't have sold me to slavery, he could just sit there getting more angry and angry. So what do you do? When you're right and it spins around negatively and ends up in a disaster-like situation? Or when you're wronged? And Joseph has every right to be angry. He has every right to be upset. He has every right to just stew over this. He's been forgotten by his family. He's had all of this stuff go on. So what do you do? Joseph, he recognizes that his brothers are there. And there's some odd stuff. There's about three chapters where it seems like he's toying with them a little bit, like a brother deserves to. And finally, he says, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? And it doesn't tell us what, what happened there, but we can imagine his brothers, their hearts skipped a beat, basically, right? They're terrified at his presence. Is there somebody in, in your past that you've wronged or done something to that if they were to just show up, your heart would sink a little bit. They're kind of like a ghost in, in your past. They haunt you a little bit. And if they were just to show up, you wouldn't know what to do. When they realize what this means and what all is happening, they obviously, terrified is the Hebrew phrase there. It's, they, are, they are so scared. They have no other response but just to be really nervous about this. And then eventually um, their father dies and they think, uh-oh, this is when the hammer's going to drop. You know, he's been kind while dad was around, but now that dad's gone, like, that's not really going to work out well for us anymore. But he gathers them in Genesis chapter 50, and it says this. He says to them, as they're very nervous, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, 
But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And this great phrase here, and he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. In this moment of a grand reveal, and when he finally gets that chance, when they realize, okay, now that dad's dead, this could be go, go bad for us. In this very pivotal scene, it tells us that he speaks kindly. How is that possible? I would argue that it's because Joseph's been practicing. Because the words that he has said about them while they haven't been together... And maybe there's times when he's frustrated and he's angry and he's upset and he thinks about maybe the missed opportunities and the missed time that he would have had with them or with his father. Maybe he thinks about that at times. But I would argue the way that he's able to speak to them right now and speak kindly is because he's been practicing. That when he tells his story, He doesn't talk about how bad they were, the terrible things that they did. He doesn't just sit and stew and and just think about how they're the worst people. He uses his words in ways that aren't daggers. And have you ever had a moment or a conversation with somebody that you're dreading and they just respond in grace? Isn't that the most amazing feeling in the world? that you borrowed something from somebody and now you broke it and like, you got to like take it back and you're feeling terrible and they just say like, it's all right. It's all right. No problem. This is that moment for them. And again, I would argue that at some point in your life, you're, you're likely to have a moment like this. It probably won't be with 11 people that you're, you're related to except for possibly Thelma, but everybody else you're probably not going to have as dramatic of a moment as that. Or maybe you won't ever. Maybe there won't be that reconciliation. Maybe you really were wronged and things were really that negative and they really screwed up. And you might not ever have that moment where it's going to be reconciled and everything's going to be better. But do you want to, even if that moment never happens, do you envision a moment like that where maybe the conversation is happening and you would speak kindly? to that person. That you would speak kindly. The most profound moments in our lives are when we expect condemnation and we receive grace. What if we could bless the world in the same way? And what if we could practice like that? There's actually some really fascinating research recently. In in 1980, there were zero articles on forgiveness in the Journal of Cognitive Psychology. Zero. Now, people have realized, actually, forgiveness has unbelievable benefits to the person, not just that you're forgiving, but to the person who is doing the forgiving. And so there's now thousands of articles on this, in this journal, a very academic journal that basically says that you can receive unbelievable benefits, not just like off in the future, but right now. Like you, If you're a Christ follower, you should forgive people because that's what Jesus does. But if you're not a Christ follower, you should do it because it's better for your health. And so if you're a Christ follower, you get the double bonus there. Like if you're somebody who follows Jesus, then you would forgive somebody because it's what God calls us to do. It's the way that Jesus lives. And also, there's benefits 
Again, the psychology research is just coming around to this. It would have been nice if someone would have told us, I don't know, 2,000 years ago in the Bible. You know, it's, it would have been nice if some. oh wait, they did. But forgiveness is, is a challenge. It's hard for us to, to fill in the gap with, with kind words about someone else. And to not just think about your own perspective on that story and to not just replay that over and over again in their head. And like I was doing with my professor that one time, to just treat them like this bumbling idiot while I'm some sort of savant. What would it look like for you to fill in that space with kindness? The reason why I know this is hard is it's just human nature. But one of the memes that goes around, and one of my favorite memes is this one, Kermit drinking tea. If you, some of you are like, I know what that is. Like, um, the Kermit drinking tea meme is popular, and it, it especially goes around when you see someone else that's like being a hypocrite or doing something that you warned them not to do, and now like you're the one who's just kind of sitting back, like I knew it was going to lead to their peril. Like, why didn't they listen to me? Um, and so Kermit drinking tea goes around. There's a quote from an article I found about this meme. Perhaps you've seen this Kermit meme peppering your Twitter and Facebook. He's pictured sipping a piping cup of Lipton tea while pointing out the hypocrisy or stupidity of a person or group. Everything from people's social media use to honey boo-boo to Russian meddling in the presidential election has come under Kermit's salty fire before adding, but that's none of my business because Kermit mixes things up, but ultimately he's above the fray. And we deep down know that we like that. We know like when, when maybe someone has done something wrong to us and we see their lives failing a little bit, we just want to like take that little sip of tea. And we want to tell the people that, that we are in agreement with us, like, oh, isn't it interesting how they're failing? Like, oh, you know, I kind of wish they were succeeding, but let me just sit back. The words that we use matter deeply. Again, I would argue that the way Joseph is able to use these words and speak kindness is because he's been practicing. Who are some people or some situations maybe that you need to to speak more kindly about? Because think about it. I have these really wonderful props back here. Like imagine that this this moment happens, and it's, it's really significant and really important to you, and it matters a lot, and that person really hurts you. That's why it's bigger than the other one. Um, so this, this conflict happens, and this issue goes on, and either you were, you were right, and people responded negatively, or you were just plain wronged. And from here to here, and you could span this however long it is, 10 years, 15 years, 5 months, whatever it is, in the midst of this time, the, the space between the moment that you were hurt or they said something or did something and the time when you're reconciling, and this might not actually happen in your life, perhaps, but wouldn't you want to work towards it in every situation? Wouldn't you want to be ready with words of kindness instead of words of condemnation? If someone was to come to you one day and say, you know, oh, you know, you were right. I'm so sorry. Do you want to be in an angry mood to just like bury them? Or do you want to be like Joseph? And to say, even though this has been really hard for me, even though this has been a conflict and this was, this was hurtful, it was difficult, like, I'm going to welcome you as my brother. 
the words that we use about other people, they deeply impact. And when something has happened that's extremely difficult for you, the space between the words that we use to describe that person or that situation, they matter a lot. They weigh a lot. Have you ever been in a conflict maybe and um, after a while you realize, like, I'm probably thinking about them way more than they're thinking about me. I'm talking about them way more probably than they're talking about me. That's unhealthy, unhelpful, and most importantly, unchristian. And the words that we use about these situations, the way that we describe others, the things that we say during these these spaces between, and again, this might never actually happen, but wouldn't you like to be practicing for the day that it does? Wouldn't you want to have that spirit? Because the words that we use about these situations, they matter and they weigh a lot. We got to take Carter to Disneyland. He just turned five. And we got to take him down to Disneyland for his birthday, which was a lot of fun. And we were waiting in line for the Buzz Lightyear ride, which is a great one. I'm not very good at it. My scores are always pretty low, but um, uh, I try. And um, as we're waiting for, for that ride, a voice comes over the loudspeaker and says, uh, just so you know, like, the Buzz Lightyear ride is down for a few minutes. So we're going to try to get it up. They try to say it very encouragingly. And like, we'll try to get it up as soon as possible. And we waited for about five minutes, and then the loudspeaker voice comes on again and says, we've got it up and running, Buzz Lightyear fans. And then the lady that was right in front of us, she said, thank God. I thought about that. That, that was just like her like knee-jerk, her gut response. First of all, that is just like the height of privilege, right? <laughs> like, you're, I understand the lines at Disneyland are probably the most frustrating thing about Disneyland, but that is the height of privilege that you're thanking God that this ride that you're waiting for at a park that costs a hundred and something to get into is now running again. Like, for that lady... Is saying something like that going to make her a more generous, gracious person? To just have that, like, on the tip of their tongue. To say it all the time. Or the things that that you're saying about a situation or about a person, or the things that you just say consistently, are they bringing, like, more hope into the world and more life? Because your words weigh a lot. And it has an impact not only on the person maybe that you're trying to forgive and that you're working through something with, but it has a deep impact on you. One book that I was reading, a commentary, um, it was talking about the life of Joseph, said something interesting that, that I hadn't thought about before. It mentions this. It says that, remarkably, when Joseph sees his brothers after so many years, the first thing he remembers is his dreams. Not his brother's cruelty or betrayal, but his dreams. After all these years, historians estimate this would have been probably about 22 to 30 years of time. If you would have been bitter and angry and upset, if you were like ready to go Rambo on these people and just like pour out your vengeance, the thing that it robs you ultimately of is your hopes and dreams. Do you want to believe that the world is a good place? Do you want to believe in the potential of the world? Do you want to hope for like bigger and better things? Then don't live with such negativity in between these two spaces. 
in life, you will be wronged at times. In life, you will do stuff at times that is right and have it negatively interpreted. That's going to happen. But if you stay in that space and just continue to roll over it again and again in your mind, what ultimately is robbed from you is your dreams. Because you don't see the the good news. You don't see what is great and the potential that is out there. You ultimately don't get a chance to dream. So I love that. That as Joseph sees his brothers, what he remembers, like his knee-jerk response is his dreams. And he's known as someone who is a dreamer himself and interprets dreams. Isn't that way better than spending all this time bitter? Isn't that way better than just rolling over it in your head over and over again, and then right when you see them fail, you know, just having the Kermit meme pop up in your mind? Isn't it better to live as Joseph does, and then when he has that moment to ultimately speak to them, when they're really, really nervous about what he's going to say because now dad is dead, he speaks kindly because he's been practicing. That's why at the beginning of this series, I challenged all of us uh, to think about someone or some situation that was difficult or weighed on you, someone that you need to reconcile with. Because when Jesus talks about loving your enemies, he first talks about praying for them. Because if you are able to say someone's name before God in prayer, wishing for good things, not bad things, not God, please help a piano to fall on this person, but wishing for good things to say, you know, God, please just work on this person's life. I wish good things for him. I wish good things for her. And I challenge you, maybe you haven't started yet. That's okay. Take the next 30 days and say someone's name out loud before God. Be, be alone. That's okay. Say someone's name out loud before God that you need to be reconciled with or that you don't necessarily hope the best things for. And the reason why Jesus says it is because he knows that words weigh a lot and it'll change your heart. And forgiveness often starts with our words and what we say about other people. Hatred, bigotry, racism, all these horrible things that have happened in our world, they get smuggled along in our words. It ends up resulting in actions, but they get smuggled along in our words. So that's why Jesus says, I tell you, pray for those who are your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So that one day, you might be able to speak kindly about them. And you might never have this moment. The people who wronged you or the things that got misinterpreted, they might never come back to you and say, you know, you were right. Well, let's all practice like one day you will get that opportunity. Because this is God's hope for all of us. We're going to take at communion now, so if our communion servers could head back and the worship team, if you could come up for, for this last song. I wanted to take communion at the end of, of this sermon because uh, communion is a reminder that none of us are perfect. 